Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. Hi, I'm Ryder Smith, host of the Public CEO Report. Welcome to the show. Today, we're joined by Kevin Lyons from Flashboat. He's the founder of Flashboat and the president and CEO. Kevin, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Great to talk with you, Ryder. It's great to have you here. So can you tell me what Flashvote is real quick? Uh, sure, yeah. Flashvote is a way to get statistically valid community input in 48 hours uh, for local governments. So it solves the problem of the noisy few or the too few, and uh, it helps people make great decisions. Basically, a decision support tool that's, uh, that's new. All right. So I want, I'll, I want to dive into that a bit more, but sure. also... Uh, I should just note that uh, Flashboat is not new to me. I've been familiar with your work for several years now. In fact, I became so familiar with it that I have an obligation to make a disclosure at the start of this podcast, too, which is that I've actually personally invested in Flashboat because I'm so compelled by the tools and the options that are created by Flashboat and the data that it empowers organizations with. Um, so personal disclosure to the world out there, I am an investor in Flashboat. But having said that, it's a great solution for local governments and really a good complement to the kind of work um, that public agencies are engaged in when it comes to communications and outreach. So I want to talk some more today about exactly how that tool can be helpful, why it even matters, uh, and really just kind of the dynamic environment we're facing today with communications mm -hmm. and the challenges that public agencies face, uh, discerning good data from bad data, good feedback from bad feedback, and making the most out of their public engagement efforts. Sounds great to me. Um, you know, don't take investing advice from Ryder, but uh, <laughs> let's let's roll. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fair fair point. Oh, no, we appreciate you uh, being on board. It's, uh, yeah, let's help. Let's help California governments. It's awesome. So, tell me why why flash vote? Why why was this needed? Yeah, well, so uh, there's this kind of the short version, the long version. The short version is that governments have a very hard time. Just today, actually, I watched a video of uh, I think it was Orange County, and there was a little news report about it, and. It started out showing a long line of 100 people waiting to speak. I think it was back in March or April. And the reporter said, 100 people showed up to the meeting and only one was in favor of masks, right? So, so what does that tell you? Like as a person sitting up there and I've sat up there and had this effect, you're like, oh my gosh, everyone hates, hates masks, right? Of course, what it really told you was 100 people in Orange County of you know, 20 million people or whatever the heck it is. Three million, three million. Three million, yeah. It's a big number, big number. They don't like masks. Okay. So what was awesome about this clip, and then about a minute later, they showed one of the board members. And then, by the way, they don't even vote on this. It's up to their public health person in Orange County. And, they, and the guy says, well, you know, 10 to 1, people that contact me are in favor of masks. Right? So again, another slice of the universe. Uh, the guy was sincere. You know, I don't doubt it. And both of them are basically garbage. I mean, they're completely misleading. They give you no idea what the community says. And of course, they don't even help you decide if it's a good idea or not, like real true decision support. And so that's a problem we just kept seeing again and again in some projects we were working on and uh, wanted to come up with a solution if we could you know, engineer something where you could get rapid representative feedback from regular people in the time between a meeting notice and the meeting itself. That was like the hard challenge we went up to. So I think there's a lot of, conversation and people probably think about this like as like polling effectively like i want to go poll my community understand where their head's at uh and i so i've seen some organizations basically do a survey monkey or a constant contact survey and shove it out the door and see what yeah. kind of responses they get um but 
you know, I think most people understand that those are somewhat inherently flawed. Like it's not a scientific sampling. You don't know who you're going to get. So those aren't really, uh, those aren't equivalents, I think, to what a flash vote is designed to do. Could you explain kind of the difference between, say, SurveyMonkey, which might give you answers within 34, or excuse me, 48 hours, but uh, it basically gets wrong faster, uh, as opposed to something like a flash vote, which has a more scientific approach to it? Yeah, there's there's uh, several things to kind of uh, unpack in there. One is that the the you know the name is SurveyMonkey, uh, but it's really identical to Google Forms or you know Jot or whatever else you know you want to use to get people to fill out a form. So it really should be called more like Petition Monkey, right? So the people that are interested in it find out about it, they take it, maybe they take it multiple times, they certainly share it with their friends on one side of an issue, and so what happens is you know it's a great way to do find out like what a small group of people want who will respond at a very high rate, you know, like 50 to 70% of your tennis players might respond to a question about the tennis court maintenance, right? Really targeted or, or maybe even employees, if you don't care that much about the, the anonymity, which they tend to care about actually. But if you can do that, it's, it's okay. It's actually good. And it's a great solution. Um, what happens is if you're trying to actually survey a community or some large group, you need a way to get that sample unrelated to that topic of that survey, you know, unrelated to who happens to find it or wants to share it and so on. So just as an example of how, how bad that data is, if the, we signed up with a customer in Massachusetts and the first survey they did was on a community center and they'd already done a, uh, they had a feasibility consultant that they paid 80,000 bucks to and part of that was finding out what the community wants. Will they pay for it? And they found out that 85% of people would pay, I think it was 100 bucks or more a year, which was you know, totally plausible in this kind of wealthy community. Uh, they happened to sign up with us. We duplicated the question. And the real answer was 33%. And so you saw exactly that effect. And we've seen that you know, uh, so many times since, tracking the scientific sample part of the survey versus the open link. And we've actually seen it go bad in about 10 minutes. You know, it gets worse in 48 hours. And most survey monkeys, people run for like two, three to five weeks to get enough enough responses, even though it's, you know, it just gets worse over time. Right. So these responses come in to flash vote. You're typically 48 hours and you got a good good enough data set that you're able to go to the public agency and say, here's generally where the sentiment's at and what we're hearing from the community. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the key is you know having demographics in there, having all kinds of uh, supplemental data that makes it useful for decision support. You know, to your, to your comment about polling earlier, um, you know, you can have a perfectly random sample, you can have a really high response rate, and if you ask a dumb question, kind of an uninformed opinion question, you still don't have anything at the end of the day. And so it's really key to understand what are they, what's the, what's on the table. You know, what's the decision there that's on the table? How does public input, or can it, you know, provide better information to help them make a more informed and better decision for the public? And that's that's really, you know, that's the whole game. Right. You've also several times referred to this as decision support. And I think yeah. one of the things that always come to my mind is uh, we're a representative democracy in America. We're not a direct democracy. So the idea here is that uh, we always want public feedback. The public ultimately holds the power in terms of the vote when it comes to electing representatives. But those are representatives who serve on our city councils, on our board of supervisors, in our state legislature, in the governor's office, in the White Mm -hmm. House. Uh, So the idea there is that we've empowered them to make decisions. But they need to make those decisions, and oftentimes they want to make decisions with support, right? Hence the data or the idea behind decision support. 
So it seems to me that the existence of Flash Vote and these idea, the idea, whole idea of kind of pulling the community in these brief snippets on specific subject areas is designed around the idea of not abdicating your responsibility as an elected leader to be a decision maker, but to simply make sure that when you're making a decision, it's not with perhaps some false perceptions of what the community demand is for a particular action. Exactly. Yeah, it solves that problem because what happens is you actually have well-intentioned officials like these people in Massachusetts who are about to go ahead and spend $30 million on a community center. You know, not knowing, having no idea that the community actually already turns out their their activity, their rec stuff is already taken care of for most of them. And that it's this noisy group, which feels like the whole universe to them, but it isn't. And without that data in the room, uh, you can make mistakes like this. And we, we've seen this over and over. We, we started keeping track. We're over $250 million of mistakes avoided with just our first you know, 50 customers who went back and looked. And that kind of uh, thing is, is eye-opening, actually kind of terrifying. Uh, but you know, having been there, it's also supernatural when people are yelling at you about something. That is your universe at that point in time when you're sitting up there at that table. Yeah, well, having been a planning commissioner in my city and obviously having attended uh, my fair share of city council meetings, I certainly know the pressures that come to bear. And I, I'm also acutely aware of of the reality that when you are facing a major council decision and or any elected body decision, there are always interest groups who are going to rally their teams to show up at yep. the meeting, show up at the hearing, come with their prepared statements. Um, you know, arguably, you could look at uh, what's been going on, say, for the last six months in America now, right? So since early 2020 forward, uh, and there's been a lot of community feedback on a wide range of issues uh, mm -hmm. that isn't based at least on some of the broader polling data isn't necessarily reflective, right? So say like the question of defund the police. I mean, there's been lots of appeal and I've seen lots of city councils get huge appeals by groups to say defund the police. It's been a constant drumbeat, but when you go to actually look at some broad survey data, there seems to be an overwhelming support of maintain funding for police or actually increase funding for police, quite the opposite of defund. Yeah, so, well, especially when you look at the neighborhood level, right? When you, when you personalize the question, one of the real key things is if you if you don't target that to the resident expertise, you know, if you ask them, for example, hey, what do you think of the police? Maybe they have no experience with the police at all. Right? It becomes kind of a popularity contest one way or another. You know, they love them and they hate them. But if you ask them, just like exactly you're saying, if you ask them things like, hey, would you like more or less police in your neighborhood? That that swings and that's uniform by any kind of slice and dice you want to do, you know, ethnicity and so on. Right. Yeah. So it's just I think I think from that perspective, it becomes uh, a very interesting uh, tool to figure out how to get more broad people engaged, at least in responding to this particular element, to better inform a decision about who exactly we're we reacting to or responding to and make sure it's not just the sometimes referred to STP in local government or same 10 people that might be in the room banging, you know, banging the beat on a particular policy initiative or issue that isn't necessarily reflective of the whole community. And I, absolutely. I think I think the other point I would make there is that from my perspective, that doesn't mean that therefore you just go with a simple majority on what they think in that, right? That's a decision support tool. There may be a very good complicated policy initiative you want to address, say around uh, reallocating funding of police or certain priorities you want to place. So it doesn't mean that it's wrong necessarily, but to have the perception that 80% or 100% of your community wants to defund the police because that's what the 50 comments were that were submitted on the email form is not necessarily good democracy or good representation of what your community is actually thinking. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the reminder of the org chart, I always try to, you know, when I'm at a meeting, you know, I'm county advisory board, picture the org chart. There's the public, 
then there's a line, then there's the representatives whose job is to act as the public as a whole, serve the public as a whole. And it's, it's unfair to not actually have the public as a whole giving you guidance and feedback, right? Yeah. Because you, you do these things and, you, and you, you're confident you're doing the right thing. And then you find out either too late, unfortunately, after something's down, you know, the horse is out of the barn or uh, you find out, you know, when people find out what you actually just did because the special interests are on top of exactly what's going on too. So they know when the meeting is coming up and this thing's happening and they want to, you know, push it through. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big problem. The flash vote was, was inspired by, um, you know, essentially the ancient Athenian democracy model and also the New England town meetings where I grew up, you know, 400 year old town government that's been running the same the whole time and doesn't go bankrupt and doesn't have a lot of problems because there's a it's a really tight linkage when you have that once a year meeting where 1500 people are showing up in the same room and uh, you know they're going to make sure that everything is kind of within the realm of what the public wants right that's interesting that's yeah. a great point great point about even within america the diversity and kind of governance structure and community engagement structures for local government in the state it's remarkable i, I mean when you think um I'm the world's biggest local government nerd, but basically the, you know, as you go from New England, even within New England, there's differences, you know, representative town meeting versus regular town meeting, depending on the size and so on. Uh, but as you move across the country, it's funny because some of the, some of the elements of a public meeting we try to have, but, you know, kind of like to say there's a decision, you can have a, uh, a meeting to make public decisions like a New England town meeting, or you can have a meeting to make decisions public, right? And there's a difference. And, mm. you know, I'd say the California version is really more the latter because a lot of times the decisions are essentially already been made. The data is already there. Um, and maybe they, they have or they haven't gotten that, that true public input that yeah. may or may not be helpful. Right. Uh, you had earlier made mention of uh, $250 million avoided in, in mistakes or, or whatnot, which just kind of raises just a, a price question. So uh, for the sake, I, I kind of like to cut to the chase on these things just because it helps for the audience to know what they're getting themselves yeah. into or what the heck we're talking about here. So uh, not that it needs to be a sales pitch, but can you just give a quick model for kind of the economics behind the flash vote arrangement? Is it an annual contract? What does it generally cost? How does it pricing variable, very, yep. very, things like that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, we're, we're idiots because we basically are mission driven. Like the first thing we did was ask little towns under 10,000 people, what would make this a no brainer for you? And they said, uh, as like six years ago, they said, oh, well, 5,000 bucks, you know, keeping in mind that one scientific survey costs 25 to 40 K. Right. And we said, oh, my God, we're going to have to automate everything. And no, literally we did. We spent, you know, years and millions doing that. And we got to the point where that can, we can make that work, uh, you know, and that, up to six surveys at that low end. And it, it ramps up from there, you know, 10,000, 15. But um, still, our goal was to basically make them 90 percent faster, cheaper and easier. Right? Because our, our belief was if everyone could do this, they would do it because it's like dream data, especially as an elected official, especially as a city manager, especially as a department head working on a project. Yeah. Very powerful data to include as you're making as you're making a decision, kind of understanding what right. the public sentiment might be. Yeah, we we've gotten great great phrases from customers like, "Oh, it's defensible data, right? We love it," you know, or it just eliminates the uncertainty. We're no longer throwing darts. All that stuff. Everyone's passionate about their community. They just may have different beliefs about you know what the community wants, and so it eliminates contention. All that all that stuff that's super annoying. 
So the solution itself ultimately results in a link that gets sent to what's considered a panel of, of uh, participants. It's a panel that you assemble through some methodology to create a panel that kind of mimics the geographic, ethnic, some combination of diversity and elements that are emblematic of the community that it's supposed to represent. Um, the building that panel is part of the art, right? It's part of the kind of yep. secret sauce of making the flash vote solution work, but um, you have a methodology to get that done, as I understand it. And then fundamentally- Several, actually. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, do you want to comment on any of that stuff, or do you want to leave that secret sauce for secret? Yeah, no, I mean, the idea is uh, it, there's a reason that uh, you know the national research firms like Pew and Gallup and so on have gotten away from uh, you know random digit dialing. Um, and it basically has comes down to response rate. So 20 years ago, you could get a 60% response rate on just randomly dialing phone calls and getting people to take surveys. And nowadays it's like 1%. And so you, know, you have all these biases, these non-response biases and, hey, you know, we're calling, I heard a, sur I heard a you know, well-known well uh, surveyor say, well, you know, we don't, we don't really care as long as they respond because it's so hard, right? right? So you say, hey, we're calling about the uh, airport survey. Well, you know, hang up or stay on if you care about the airport survey. So you really, that, that self-selection bias is not fixed by, the, by that anymore because of the response rates being so low. And so the real key is how do you build a panel of people that are not uh, there for a particular topic? You know, they're regular people. They may not even be paying attention. And that led to a lot of things. Like, you know, we tested for 18 months with residents basically, deeply disappointed them over and over and over until we didn't anymore. <laughs> And then um, we'd come up with something that they loved. They were like, oh, my God, that's so easy. And we go, well, yeah, that's how it came out of my head. And I just, you know, wrote a few lines of code and we were good. No, but it's 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 what's in it for them, right? So the speed, the ease, we eliminate half the clicks. We, we, we share the results immediately, you know, if they take the survey when it's over. So all kinds of little things that go into that, you know, that resident side of the experience uh, are really critical to getting a high response rate, which is, of course, you know, the whole game, which we do. Sure. And I, well, I would suspect it's getting a high response rate and then sustaining them as members of the panel over time too, yeah. right? So they don't drop out because they get survey fatigue. The, as I understand it, the model is we can hit them maybe once a month as as frequently as, as up to once a month and not much more. And the survey instrument itself is typically short format and take, should take less yeah. than five minutes to complete, right? Less than five, five questions or less, actually one minute. Essentially the ask is, do you have one minute a month to help make your community better? Right. And, you know, a lot of people will give that a shot, expect to be disappointed and then surprised pleasantly when it's a good experience. Then they hang on and they're there and it tends to even they might even share it, might grow a little bit over time, which we've seen typically. So the thing about Flashflow that one of the things about Flashflow that intrigued me, too, in terms of the nature of the work that um, I had the opportunity to do with my team at Tripepi Smith was the idea of um, making doing the work that we do to do outreach and education and communication and then survey the public and see where their heads are at on a few key issues, right? And then turn along for another three months and keep doing outreach and communication and then baseline survey again, see if we've moved that needle. So a lot of the work we do in the communications outreach world, I can give you a really good sense uh, about how many people have we reached? How many eyeballs saw our content? How many Google ads did we manage to place? Mm. How many, what was our reach on Facebook? Uh, but what I can't necessarily tell you is, you know, do do a thousand people, do a thousand more people or do 5% more of the public know about how to properly recycle a pizza box? Uh, and so <laughs> the reality is like, 
now I can actually survey on these things and see, did I did I move the needle, right? Do more people, did this campaign X actually help me achieve a, some modest change? And, you know, it would be insane to be able to do that with a thirty or $40,000 survey for that kind of answer, right? The cost of knowing that answer would far exceed the value of the-, the It's even the worse. Education. I just had this conversation today with someone who was asking about, you know, series doing something and then measuring the change. If you do that with a random sample survey, you go, hey, great, we our satisfaction went from 87% to 91%. Did it? No, there's a plus or minus 4% or 5%, depending on what you did, or 6%, right? right. So it's just noise. It may feel real, because again, it's there in front of you. Uh, the, one of the coolest things, a nerdy thing, but if you do that cohort analysis is the is the the nerd word, you basically have the same, some same subset of people that take the survey, say on snow plowing last year and this year. So you do snow plowing last year, you change the contractor for your cul-de-sacs, and you want to know how did the cul-de-sac people like the snow plowing this year? And there's no margin of error because it's literally those same, you know, 250, 300, 500, whatever that group is, are now answering the exact same question a year later. So you know, you got better or worse. Right. Yeah. So in some ways it's kind of like, uh, as I like to think about it too, it's like you have a 700 person or 500 person focus group yeah. You're asking some basic questions and then you bring that focus group back every month and chat with them again about where their heads are at. And you just consistently go back to that same focus group to get a sense of how you're moving forward as a community. That's right. It's it's um, it's giant focus group, giant advisory panel. Uh, all those all those are you know, the right way to think about it. It's essentially, you know, hundreds or thousands of regular people that are on call to give you feedback in 48 hours. So what do you think the future of surveying looks like or of, of this kind of, like how do you see this tool playing out as you continue to roll it out in communities? Well, I think what was, what's really cool is because we, we actually work with the communities on the questions. So we, you know, we talk through topics with them, figure out what they need to know. Uh, we're building this huge database of, of questions. And what we're finding is the more we show people, you know, there's kind of this, abstract thing, hey, we get you know feedback in 48 hours, blah, blah, blah. But you go, hey, do you want to know this? I take take some of the COVID stuff. Hey, do you want to know the impacts of COVID in your community at the end of this week? You know, yeah, actually yeah. I would, right? Okay, you know, let's do that. Done, right? Launch tomorrow. Boom. We already have the great questions from working with previous customers. And so that's been a cool thing to to learn how they want to use it and what are the topics that um, you know are most most popular. COVID recently, you know, parks and rent, all kinds of stuff where you can't get data otherwise. Because if you can't get data otherwise, don't don't bother people with a survey. Sure. And I think that that links to one other question too, which is who develops the actual questions that get asked in these surveys? Because yeah. as you noted earlier, like a dumb question can get you horrible data, right? So how do you make sure the questions are solid? Whose job is that? Yeah, so that's that uh, falls on us. We've We've actually developed about 23 points of quality control. Uh, at this point. And I still remember way back in the day, one of our longtime customers, I first met with him and I was going through, we just spent this 18 months working with residents and I was highlighting all these awesome things we do that residents love. And she's like polite looking at me. Oh, that's, that's nice. That's nice. And I was just kind of like, huh, wow, everyone seems to like, uh, well, and we'll write the questions for you. And she goes, you'll write the questions. That would be awesome. You know? <laughs> And we're like, hmm, that's definitely going to be an important part of the product, maybe. And that's <laughs> absolutely proven to be the case. It's like, look, we're not survey writing experts. You know, we're general communicators, really skilled, you know, have these. They're way more skilled as communicators than I am. 
but we know how to extract data for decisions from a large group. I mean, essentially what I did PhD research in. How do you get that collective information to inform a collective decision? So we're the nerds. They're the, you know, very nice, outgoing communicators that you enjoy talking with. Yeah, they're the gregarious, outgoing, happy-go-lucky communicators in the world. And your job is to work in the uh, in, in the dregs of the dungeon, creating amazing survey questions and getting answers for them. That's to know right. And making sure they get the credit. Don't leave that out. No, it's, it right. really is. It's, it's a joint effort. Um, our questions would not be nearly as good, you know, if, if it wasn't this beautiful back and forth where we iterate until they go, yes, this is it. This is exactly what we want to know. It looks great. Everything's correct, and then we set set it and forget it. Launch it at that point. Do you have any other examples of kind of interesting survey questions you've asked, or surprising outcomes that have come out from some of the some of the surveys you've done that you want to share with our audience? Um, I my favorite. I keep. I mean, we made a video about this backyard chickens. One of my favorite surveys uh, because we actually we had it. We had a suspicion that this was going to be one of those hot topics. Essentially, the worse the hotter the topic, the worse your engagement data is. The more engagement you probably get, but in terms of representation, it just gets more skewed. And um, so we did this question. We put it in, how much do you care about backyard chickens in a, in a city in Oklahoma? And we you know, had the regular scientific sample. And we tracked how that went in by the hour. We went back and looked at the data and just kind of bounced around, around, you know, 26, 27, 28, 26, 20, you know, right around the same number it ended up at. And then we looked, we had the open link that people could find and share if they wanted to at the same time. And we separate that out as the, you know, not the invited scientific sample, but just the open traditional, you know, survey monkey style. And we watched it within 10 minutes, someone found it, a chicken person, and then they shared it. And we watched like the, how much do you care about chickens? Just started marching up and marching up in the sample. And by the time it closed in just 48 hours, it was already like 70% of people cared a lot about chickens who were taking the survey instead of 26. And so it's just one of those things where you're like, you, you, you know, you think this is what's going on, but then you just see it play out so beautifully clearly. And that's the, that's ultimately, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, I, you know, 76% chicken love out there. I could see that. I mean, I have about 23 people on my team and I'd say at least 15 of them are total chicken fanatics. Like they routinely show up with eggs in their hands and uh, wearing feathers on their uh, sweatshirts and whatnot. I, I, they're big chicken people. Protesting a lot. And uh, I actually had had a chicken growing up in, in our yard. And so I'm, I have my sympathies, which I have to set aside in you know professionalism. Um, I, all I know is we did not ask, are you for or against chickens either, right? Because that's that dumb, uninformed data. It was really like, hey, which of these things are you concerned about, right? Which of these things might be good ways to address it? So um, it worked out great. They passed the chicken ordinance. Everyone was happy. You know, everyone that, when, especially when you see the data anyway, you realize you're an outlier. Right. You kind of self-censor a little right. bit. Oh, well, I, I will admit I'm, I'm pretty pro-chicken. Uh, I'm not sure where that falls in the actual. I don't think we can. I don't think we can have this conversation. This is getting too political. <laughs> but I had chickens growing up myself, so they do. Nice. They're very relaxing. Yeah. They make me smile. They make me smile. Yeah. Uh, so I guess let's let's start to kind of wrap this up for the conversation. But uh, you also just in the nature of the work that you have going on, you get to talk to cities all over America and the, and the work that you do at Flash Vote. So. What's what's going right in local government? What's working and what's not working? Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of things are working in local government. A lot of people have no idea 
I mean, that's kind of the, that's the big thing. And that's actually something we've helped people try to figure out with communication surveys. Um, I think there's a lot of challenges right now, especially with the meetings going away. Uh, I have heard, we have a lot of candid conversations uh, where, you know, turns out a lot of people like the meetings because less people are showing up. And uh, I remembered having a, having a conversation with a really wise old city manager in Texas. And he remembers, you know, when they started televising the meetings, that's when they started getting the grandstanding residents, right? People take their three minutes and they own it and they're going to say whatever they say, even if it's crazy or whatever. Um, you know, the, that's going to that's gonna keep happening. There's going to be a struggle. But at the moment, it seems like there's a lot more openness to kind of digital approaches, which I think a lot of governments are doing, already doing a fantastic job at. Some of our customers are winning awards for all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, I, I just uh, I think the the ones that aren't doing that and are slow to that are going to have a much harder time, uh, you know, moving forward. Just especially as as uh, you know the digital generation continues to take over the the population. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. By the way, what are what are you hearing about pains struggles right now uh, with your clients? So I'd say number one is just them trying to get to the digital transformation of having remote workforces and what that looks like and how they're handling their labor policies and their worker productivity questions and running virtual city halls. You know, I can think of like a city of American Canyon that um, had already laid some groundwork to go to a digital city hall it was a laser fish project that they were working on. And fortunately they had that in place and were able to accelerate some of those initiatives and really get a lot of stuff done while not having people at city hall so in one respect they were able to execute but others that um hadn't necessarily climbed some of the technology curve or hadn't gone to cloud technologies they were struggling a lot more yeah. to make it work um and to uh essentially have a productive workforce let alone all the other complications that are coming from uh, new policies and procedures and dealing with, of course, all the health consequences and issues they're trying to yep. deal with. And now they're recasting their their budget numbers to understand exactly what the, the budget impacts are going to be. A lot of the cities we get the opportunity to work with are smaller cities. Um, but when I say we, I mean our team at Trepepe Smith and the work we do there, um, they're smaller cities. And so they don't have, uh, smaller cities basically kind of got left out on the sidelines with some of the federal funding that came through, mm -hmm. um, getting usually just pennies on the dollar relative to some of the bigger organizations out there. So they really haven't had that federal backstop on the funding side necessarily to the degree that the bigger organizations have had. So those ones are, are particularly struggling to figure out what to do. Now, it also tends to be the case that those smaller cities had deeper on a percentage basis reserves. So they could, some of them were in a better position to withstand a gut punch of the financial chaos that coronavirus is creating out there. But that's not sustainable, right? If coronavirus continues on for umpteen months and continues to eat away at the general funds for these cities, um, out here in California, we're primarily funded by sales tax revenues, right? So when restaurants yep. aren't selling nearly the amount of food they were, that's a huge impact. When the bars are closed, that's a huge impact. I mean, we love our alcohol here in California. And if we're not buying alcohol, we're not funding our police department. We're not funding our dog catcher. We're not funding our parks and rec program. So Count me in that team. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's uh, No, you, you mentioned the budget. I mean, I, the short answer to the question you asked earlier is essentially budgets also. I mean, Sales tax, are, are behaviors going to go back to normal? When are they going to go back to normal? What's the impact going to be long term in the budget? You know, how do we adjust throughout the year as our projections are off? That's yeah. been probably our number one thing yeah. lately. Yeah. I would say my, my flip Pardon. point that I would make to the challenge that the cities are facing is I have appreciated the speed at which they're trying to adapt, right? So um, 
city of Paramount launched a, they revamped some of their rules and came up with an expedited process to help their businesses shift to outdoor dining and converting some of their parking lot, parking lots and converting some of their sidewalks, launched a whole website that we had an opportunity to work with them on at Trepepe Smith that I think, you know, really just evidences how cities know that they need a partnership with their local businesses to help make things work for the community that, um, uh, that with greater commerce, uh, communities prosper, civilization prospers. And so they have every interest in trying to make this work. And the speed at which local governments is working, have been working to adapt, I think, is a really healthy sign. I've been um, inspired, frankly, by a lot of the cities we get to work with in their efforts to adapt quickly. But I can easily see how those cities would also love to know what the impact is in their community on these things so they can adapt more quickly. And having access to flash vote type services could certainly be helpful in that process of responding quickly. So, you know, you just reminded me of a survey we did, I think it was last week, yeah, for Citrus Heights in California, just did a great survey. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, trying to figure out what is the impact, sort of question one, and then into, you know, what is the what is the effect? You know, how much shopping have you done within Citrus Heights relative to other places, right? And then also there's this element of how do you, how do you help businesses? You know, what are their expectations? We're working on one right now uh, for another city that is is really focused on that. So, okay, so, you know, what's changed? What's important to, to residents? You know, how do, we, how do we set up a shop local program? How do we, you know, support our community? And, you know, there's a ton of, ton of activity there as well. It's kind of, you know, we're, we're figuring out new ways to help them with that stuff. So uh, it's exciting. Yeah, we'll have better answers a month from now and then another month from now. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I want to bring this to a close, but before I do, how do people learn more about FlashVote or connect with you or follow you on social media? Why don't you get all that stuff out there for them to make this easy? Uh, yeah, so FlashVote.com uh, slash government, actually, if you want to go right to the to the info on for governments. You can also just contact me and I will respond I try to. I mean, I'm, I try to use the Jeff Bezos rule: respond immediately or never. And so it forces you to you know, deal with your inbox on a uh, relatively. Now, I'd love to hear from people. Call, compare notes, whatever. Uh, we also have some um, some training stuff we've been putting out there about public input, how to use what you have, ignore what you need to. That's at flashvote.com/webinar. Um, we have many case studies now, actually, flashvote.com slash COVID, C-O-V-I-D, and Kevin at Flashvote, if you just want to contact me directly, or uh, the phone number is 775-313, uh-oh, I have to look it up, 5740, something like that, it's on the website, but uh, yeah, just find <laughs> who us. Who uses phone numbers anymore? Who knows? I, that's what I'm thinking, I'm like, come on, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's on the website. No, we'd love to hear from people. And uh, yeah, we're excited to finally actually do a little marketing and get the word out that's there. So appreciate your interest and uh, hope to hope to do some work with you guys, more work with you guys soon as well. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much, Kevin. That's the report for today. So my thanks to Kevin Lyons for joining us from Flashvote. Thanks to also my, my team of uh, people who helped produce this uh, video podcast. And last but not least, my name is Ryder Smith host of the Public CEO Report. Please join us for our next episode. Thank you very much. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, 
please email alex at publicceo.com.